a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Today we're talking about human rights because it's a really, obviously, very important issue. It was more important 70 years ago, but Keith, Human Rights Day was this week. Why is it so significant? So Human Rights Day is on December 10, and that marks the 70th anniversary, 1948, of the Declaration of Human Rights being adopted in the UN General Assembly. And the person who was presiding at that time was Dr Herbert Everett of Australia. So we were there right at the very beginning. So that really is the beginning of a whole series of developments that have flowed into to human rights. You know, we take human rights for granted. But one of the points I like to make to people is that before World War II, before 1939, hardly anybody talked about human rights. There was no mechanism for the international protection of human rights. It's hard to imagine this. Like, for example, um, a lot of uh, organisations complained about the treatment of the Jews between Hitler's coming to power in 1933 through until 1939, which was the outbreak of World War II. So the six years of uh, bad treatment of the Jews. No government complained because it was seen as an internal affair. And governments in those days did not comment on the internal affairs of other countries. Um, and what we've now moved away from that. So governments do comment on the internal affairs of other countries. Uh, but that's been part of this revolution. So you get World War II, 1939 to 1945. The UN Charter, United Nations Charter, is written. And some countries said, well, we need to have a Bill of Rights attached to the UN Charter, just like the American Constitution, right? US Constitution has got a Bill of Rights attached to the Constitution. However, it was just not possible in 1945 in the amount of time available. So they said, all right, one of the first things we'll do is that we will create an international Bill of Rights. So the UN Charter, 1945, comes into effect. Australia is one of the first countries to ratify that uh, charter. And then a committee is set up, chaired by the former First Lady of the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt, the widow of Franklin Roosevelt, who'd been the wartime leader. And so she presides over a committee which created this Declaration of Human Rights. And so the Declaration lists all the rights pretty well that we now take for granted. But there was a revolutionary document 70 years ago. Um, and so that's why we make a bit of a fuss on December 10 each year to remind people about the uh, progress we've made since 1948. So obviously the catalyst, I think you mentioned it just then, the catalyst was the treatment of the Jews in the Second World War. Up to six million. That's right. Murdered. Yep, six million were murdered in World War Two, um, and the idea developed that a country that violates human rights at home will violate human rights overseas, which is why um, hit. You know, we saw that with Hitler, right? Violating human rights at home ultimately then goes on to invade the adjoining countries, and so there was a feeling that if we can nip human rights violations in the bud early on then it would actually work for international peace and security. So give me a broader understanding of what constitutes human rights or what a violation of human rights is. Well, human rights are what you get as soon as you're born. In fact, there's a bit of debate about whether or not an unborn child has human rights. That's a separate debate. But certainly, as a result of being human, you have rights. They're not given to you by a government. 
you get them automatically as a result of being human. See, if, if you're relying on what the government gives you, the government could take away, right? So uh, the the issue here then is, is that all humans are born with rights. And we have two categories of human rights. We have uh, the traditional ones, civil and political rights, which is what we're, we're constituting one example of that, which is free speech, right? You have a right to criticise your government or other governments. You have a right to assemble, as we've seen you know, with demonstrations, etc., have a right to a free press. So these are all traditional civil and political rights. And then about 100 years ago, we get, or just over 100 years ago, we get a rise of economic and social rights. In other words, the idea of a right to education, a right to holidays with pay, uh, the right to equal pay for equal work. So there... Um, it's economic and social rights. And then on top of that, there are individual rights. Then you have what's called a right of self-determination. So a right of self-determination is that a people, however defined, a people have a right to decide their own destiny. Now, that came about in World War One. The American president, Woodrow Wilson, it's hard to imagine, but we had in those days a... a um, a revolutionary and idealistic president. My grandmother remembered Woodrow Wilson visiting the United Kingdom on his way off to the Versailles Peace Conference and he was treated like a messiah. Quite incredible. Rock star treatment for the American president. So Woodrow Wilson, uh, who'd come up with a number of proposals for ending World War I, also created this idea of the right of self-determination. In other words, that people who are currently in a colonised situation would have a right to independence and a right to decide their own fate. Obviously, that was not a popular idea with the French or the Germans. Um, very radical idea. Um, but it is one that, again, we now take for granted. And so this is an example about how, over the decades, things that seem so revolutionary and idealistic are now commonplace to us. And in fact, there are actually very few empires left in the world today. All those colonies are pretty well gone. There's some dispute about Tibet, of course, within China. Uh, you've got some people who are resisting what they see as colonial powers. But generally speaking, those empires that characterise the world at the beginning of 1900 have all gone. So let's talk about the worst-case scenario, like human rights violators. Would, uh, in terms of the UN, are the worst-case scenarios genocide, where a government attacks their own people because they're uh, like a minority group? Well, genocide, by definition, is a mass violation of human rights. It means the murder of an entire group of people. And indeed, the, the phrase was coined during World War II when word was leaking out about the mass extermination of people. Um, and so somebody um, said, look, this is so awful, you can't just call it murder. And so a new term was created, uh, murder of a people, extermination of a people, genocide. Uh, and so, obviously, that so that began in World War Two as an idea. Obviously, as a characteristic of history, it's been around for millennia. But as an a legal idea, it begins in World War Two, um, and we now see it in the genocide convention. Um, again, Australia has been involved with the creation of that convention. And so, yes, that's the the largest mass violation of human rights because that's mass murder. So looking at examples of, of where genocide has occurred recently, we're looking at Myanmar, places like South Sudan. Keith, where else? Um, well, they do go on a number of places. As you said, Myanmar would be with the Rohingya people. Um, but generally speaking, there is a problem with defining genocide because you have to work out the motive 
behind um, the mass murder of people. And that has always been a bit of a weakness. The Jewish case is always selected because it's a nice, clear case. Yeah. But, but it gets a little vague when you're sort of looking at what, for example, what China is doing um, in Xinjiang. So Xinjiang is the western end of China. So it's to the north of Tibet, which is, of course, disputed territory. You go to the province of the north is a Turkish province, Turkmenistan, Western Turkmenistan. Um, and what the Chinese are now doing is inserting into people's homes a Han Chinese person who will live with that family to keep an eye on them. Now, if you're starting to remove the culture of the local people, that is seen as a form of genocide. Oh, really? Yeah. Hold on a minute. I thought it was just murder. So no, not, you can do it. No, because it's eroding if, you, if you erode the culture, then it means obviously the children who grow up don't remember their heritage. Oh, that's fascinating. I wouldn't have thought it went to that extreme. Yeah. But that means that that could happen everywhere. It's well, remember, happening a lot did of Australia commit genocide with the treatment of the stolen generations? Mm. Right? That, the, my colleague, Sir Ronald Wilson, actually used that expression, genocide. He was the one who chaired the inquiry into um, the children who were stolen. And he actually used that word. Very controversial. Um, but remember, we took the Aboriginal children away from their parents, raised them in white households or white uh, orphanages with a view to actually recreating them as white Australians rather than Indigenous Australians. So what about a place like North Korea, which is famously violator of human rights, gross violator, but it doesn't seem, it's not a clear cut um, who they aim that towards. Well, they're repressing an entire people. Their yeah. own people, right? So there's no right. It's we're doing here, right? We're, we're sitting here. We're going to end up criticising the government. You can't do that in North Korea. No right to free speech. No right to assembly. So the things that we take for granted in Australia do not exist. And you could also say that in North Korea, you don't have the same access to education, uh, economic privilege. Uh, so you've got a mass violations in North Korea. So when you've got a war that's going on, right, um, anywhere in the world, let's take the Middle East, for example, are there, you know, there's a lot of human rights abuses that go on in those sorts of contexts within the context yep. of war. Um, are there allowances from the UN's perspective for that kind of behaviour or not? Human rights regimes are designed for peacetime. So if you move across into war, we move across into the field of what's called international humanitarian law. So we're then dealing with the field of the Geneva Conventions. But wars have limits, Right? You do not have an unlimited right to use force in war. Indeed, in my time, my first doctorate is in the subject, in my time what I've noticed is rape being identified now as a war crime. I tell you, when, when I was doing my first PhD, rape was just seen as one of the fringe benefits of being a soldier. Wow. So, so you know, we have seen a transformation in 40 years in the, in the attitude towards rape. And, of course, rape can also be done against men. It's not just a male-on-female thing. It could be male-on-male. Male. Um, so that has been a change that I have seen, that rape is now seen as a war crime, and whereas it wasn't 40 years ago. And it's absolutely prevalent, by the way, in war-torn in war areas. It has been for, well, since the beginning of 
the history of warfare. Absolutely. So again, we see this change. And, and particularly in Western countries, you've got lawyers everywhere. Where there's a war, there's a lawyer. You know, the, the old saying is where there's a smoke, there's lawyers, you know, because of tobacco. But the same thing applies to what goes on in war. Although, of course, you do still get shocking abuses carried out by our own allied soldiers, um, let alone what goes on. I might just say in this context that when I was doing my doctorate, I argued that one of the reasons why you should avoid committing war crimes is that you want to avoid antagonising the local population. So um, when the British won the guerrilla struggle in what was then Malaya, today's Malaysia, and it was Sir Gerald Templer, Field Marshal, um, who coined the expression, we've got to win the hearts and minds of people. And uh, so what they what the British did was to work with the local civilians in Malaya. And over a period of time, it took a long campaign, but they beat the guerrillas. It showed that it could be done. When I was in Vietnam, I said to an American officer, pardon my English here, uh, <laughs> a bit of a warning. Uh, I said to an American officer, um, there is a, you know, what about winning the hearts and minds of people? And he said, oh, we don't bother with that. We grab them by the balls. Their heart will come along later. You don't win hearts and minds by putting people in coffins. So in fact, if you respect human rights in war or the international humanitarian law, it actually helps your case. When I, in Vietnam, I visited the survivors of the My Lai massacre and um, the, the survivors were not pro-Viet Cong, National Liberation Front, but they said that because the, the National Liberation Front Viet Cong had so little ammunition, they were very careful about how they used it. The Americans, by contrast, had bullocks and bombs, etc., which they used indiscriminately. And so the Americans turned the civilian population away from them, whereas the Viet Cong National Liberation Front attracted support from civilians simply because they had to be so careful in their use of force. If you read Chairman Mao's book on guerrilla warfare, Mao made it quite clear, you do not abuse the local civilians. Um, you, you repay anything that you take from them. That's part of winning the hearts and minds. So Chairman Mao won his war in China. Sir Gerald Templer won his in Malaya. The Americans, of course, lost theirs in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Sutter. We're talking about Human Rights Day, which was December the 10th. Um, and it, it's, it is such a, an interesting issue, Keith, because of, as you said, how far we've come in the last 70 years since it was first established, the Bill of Human Rights. China is always cited as an abuser of human rights. People are very sceptical about things that go on in that country. You did mention a few cases earlier. But why more broadly are they seen as such abusers of human rights? Well, because they have a, a controlled population. And so you do not get civil and political rights in China and now increasingly, tragically, in Hong Kong. So the Chinese government is determined to hold on to power. One of the things they've introduced is the social credit system. So in China, they have linked together credit cards. So it's a cashless society. Every payment you make is recorded because it's a, a, a transaction carried out digitally. Uh, they've got facial recognition technology and of course they monitor everything on on the internet so they are controlling everything by their citizens and over a period of time citizens no longer need to be checked on they are already self-censoring 
because they know they're being monitored. If Chances are they're not, because it's very difficult to monitor 1.2 billion people. But you have that mentality that you are being watched. And this is a bigger issue in general for looming issues in human rights, is the increased surveillance via information technology. Absolutely. This is the real concern that I've got. Um, one of the interesting uh, issues is um, a, a book written by Edwin Black. Um, he, as you go into the Holocaust Museum... Uh, he is a, a descendant of Holocaust survivors. Um, and when you go into the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., on the left-hand side, you have an IBM machine. And he got fascinated about the role of IBM in the Holocaust, right? So a lot of people use IBM equipment, right? So the problem for the Germans is how do you track down what eventually became 6 million Jews? You use IBM equipment. So IBM through a German subsidiary, sold equipment to the um, Germans and every six weeks supplied them with fresh cards throughout six years of war and got paid. Hitler was a good customer. He always paid his bills on time. IBM thought he was a good customer. Um, and this is a whole question of what you can do with your monitoring technology. My view is that I'm sure the Nazis today would, if they're around, would love the information technology that we've now got available. China would be a classic example of that because of how much monitoring you can do of people, track them down, and if necessary, put them into a concentration camp. Um, and that's, for me, one of the looming issues of 9-11, the war on terror, etc. that we are becoming a, a society which is constantly being checked on and we've got just so much surveillance that is going on. And we've got the lesson from World War II and the role of IBM. They knew what was happening with their punch cards, but they were too busy making money for this. So that is a real issue. I think also that there's the fact that people are willing to take orders. There was an interesting research done by the late Stanley Milgram, an American psychologist, um, who set up a series of experiments whereby you had an actor who was supposed to be a member of the general public and a member of the general public who was real. And the, the member of the general public was instructed by a scientist who was wearing a white coat, therefore you can trust them. And the general public was the member of the general public was told, we want you to give electric shocks to this person in the room next door. We want to test how far they can go in terms of withstanding electric shocks. And the, the actor who was next door would start screaming out and the person who was with the um, electricity equipment would say, oh, I really don't think I should continue. This guy seems to be in pain. But Stanley Milgram showed that it, you will take orders from people in a white coat. And this is a great lesson from World War II because the Germans, remember, were the best educated nation in Europe, if not the world, from 1933 onwards or even earlier. And yet, despite being so well-educated, they, they were still willing to be involved in the extermination of the Jews. And there is, therefore, this problem that we've, I think, still got, that people are willing to take orders. So, yes, we've made progress in human rights. People now know their rights, but they're still willing to take orders. And so we've still got a lot to do in terms of protecting human rights. Dr Keith, as always, fascinating stuff. Thank you. This has been Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.